So 2 Samuel 16, 15 through to 17, 14. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai the archite, David's friend, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom asked Hushai, Is this the love you show your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son, just as I serve your father? So I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself an offence to your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in, in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days... The advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. Death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. But Absalom said, summon also, summon also Hushai the archite so that we can hear what he has to say. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. You know your father and his men. They're fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father's an experienced fighter. We'll not spend the night with the troops. Even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say. They'll say, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and those, that with, those who are with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. 
If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we will drag it down to the valley until not even a piece of it can be found. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Well, thank you very much indeed for that reading, Paul. Well, one of the uh, strange and uncomfortable realities that every Christian has to come to terms with is that Jesus Christ is both opposed and victorious at one and the same time. Jesus is both opposed and victorious at one and the same time. Jesus Christ and his rule over this world is brutally opposed by the enemies of God, both satanic enemies and human enemies. Looking ahead to Jesus, who is referred to here as the Lord's anointed one, listen to how the author of Psalm 2 puts it. You'll see this on the screen. Why, he says, do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Jesus is opposed. And of course, this is one reason that the Christian life can be so hard. If Jesus has enemies, then his friends have enemies, and those enemies can be terrifying. Opposition, persecution, unpopularity, scorn, humiliation, weakness, and fear will all be part of the experience of those who follow God's King in this world. Now, as I've said for a couple of weeks running now, I think if you're a Christian this morning, or if you're looking into Christian things, then I hope you know it's going to be hard. And if anybody told you otherwise, they were lying. And come and tell me after what they said, and I'll put you right. Christian life is going to be hard. But at the same time as opposed, Jesus is victorious. Although his enemies are powerful and often appear to be winning, he has actually defeated them already. And that defeat, while we can't see it yet, will one day be headlined throughout the universe for all to see. So listen to how the psalmist continues in Psalm 2. He says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs at such opposition. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, God is so certain that his opposed king will rule his world uncontested that the human and satanic forces arranged against him, though they may seem powerful and terrifying, to God are actually a joke. God laughs at them. God's kingdom is so secure, so solid. God's king has prevailed. And do you know what this means for the Christian life? It means that the Christian life is not just hard. As well as hardship, there is comfort and encouragement. As well as fear, there is faith. As well as suffering, there is glory. As well as opposition, there is fellowship. There's sacrifice and persecution, and ultimately there is death, but there is also 
hope and victory and freedom and joy. And none of those things can be said for life without Christ. In fact, as we'll see, life without Christ is also hard. So it's a no-brainer, isn't it, to become a Christian? Here is my sales pitch for this morning. You can have a hard life with glory and joy and hope, or you can have a hard life without those things. It's a no-brainer. But if it's that simple, why doesn't everybody become a Christian? Well, the Bible gives a very clear answer to this question. It's very clear and very important. The reason is that these two seemingly opposing realities come together in exactly the same place, in the least expected place, in the least desirable place. I've talked about two forces, haven't I? Opposition and victory. And where do those two forces come together? The attack and the counterattack, the hatred and the hope, the suffering and the glory, the nations plotting, let us throw off their chains, God responding, I have installed my king, the folly of men and the wisdom of God. Those forces, which to our minds should be so separate, come together in one unexpected place. Two words, Christ crucified. That's why not everybody becomes a Christian. And what we've been seeing is that these two words and everything they mean require the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament story to grasp. That's why we are following the story of King David in 2 Samuel. As we follow the suffering and opposition and eventual victory of David, we are looking at the Bible's preparation for the coming of his king so that we will grasp a little bit better what those two important words mean. As we follow the story, therefore, we're not just looking at a, a wonderful, brilliantly written story. We need to search our own hearts as well. In the final analysis, we'll need to work out whose side we are on. Are we with those who oppose the king? Or are we with the king who is opposed? And it boils down to what you make of Christ crucified. Well, let's follow the story then. And this next part of the drama is played out in terms of wisdom and folly. The wise counsel of the traitor, first of all, in 1615 to 17.4. Look at verse 15 again. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahitophel was with him. That verse links the two sections together and gives us a bit of a, a summary of the story so far. We pick up the story with David in a very precarious position. If you're new to us this morning, uh, this is what you need to know, that his son and heir, Absalom, has organized a rebellion. While David does have some loyal supporters, the narrator's description there of all the men of Israel gathering to Absalom reminds us of what we've seen previously, that Absalom has been very successful at organizing this coup, a mixture of charismatic personality, of promises, of savvy politics, ruthless plotting, has, we were told last week, stolen the hearts of the entire nation. David has vacated the city of Jerusalem. Absalom has effortlessly moved in. And David has fled in tears across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and on towards the River Jordan and the wilderness beyond, where, if you glance back at verse 14, 
he arrived exhausted. And then verse 15 reminds us of another serious blow to David's cause. His trusted and very wise advisor, Ahitophel, has, for reasons known to himself, defected to Absalom's side and is now working to bring down David's kingdom once and for all. So that's where we left David last time. Outcast, outnumbered, outgunned, and now betrayed. But before we plunge into the drama that follows, there are two things that David knows and we the readers know, but David's enemies don't know. If you were here last week, you should remember these two things. First, when David heard of Ahitophel's betrayal, do you remember what he did? 1531, he prayed. He sent up that quick emergency prayer, 1531, O Lord, turn Ahitophel's counsel into foolishness. That's the first thing we know. David prayed. The second thing we know is that when he turned up at the top of the Mount of Olives, he met his old friend Hushai coming towards him and immediately began to see that he might be the possible answer to the prayer that he had just prayed. And so if you glance at 1534, you'll see that David gave Hushai the specific mission to frustrate Ahitophel's advice back in Jerusalem as a kind of a mole. And therefore, at this point, the future of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God in its concrete form in the Old Testament, the future of the kingdom hangs on the successful outcome of Hushai's mission, doesn't it? To turn Ahitophel's wisdom into folly. The future of the kingdom depends on God answering David's prayer in that particular way. Well, let's watch and see what happens. Verse 16. Then Hushai the archite, David's friend, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king. Long live the king. At one level, this appears to be a hearty statement of allegiance to Absalom. But which king is he referring to? Hushai knows there can only be one true king of God's kingdom. That's what 1 and 2 Samuel has all been about. Absalom, of course, true to his narcissistic character, takes the reference to himself and is surprised by Hushai's sudden defection. Verse 17, Absalom asks Hushai, is this the love you show your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, no, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, by all the men of Israel, his I will be and I will remain with him. Now, at this point, the careful reader becomes aware of a whole double meaning going on in what Hushai is saying. We know the reason that Hushai is there is precisely because he is David's friend. And in verse 18, he insists he will remain loyal to the one chosen by God, which, of course, to his mind is David. And only in verse 19 does he appear to pledge allegiance to David's son, using the words David gave him to use. But even here, he doesn't use Absalom's actual name. And so we're getting a taste here of the wisdom of Hushai. It's a little conversation of masterful ambiguity in which he deceives Absalom into believing that he is pledging allegiance while remaining true to David in his heart. 
Well, it seems that Hushai now withdraws until called for, and Absalom now turns to his famously wise Ahitophel for the thing that he is famous for, advice. Verse 20, Absalom said to Ahitophel, give us your advice. What should we do? Well, Ahitophel's advice is brutal and breathtaking. There are two parts to it. First, verse 21. Ahitophel answered, lie with your father's concubines who he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils and the hand of everyone with you will be strengthened. The first piece of Ahitophel's advice is to have sex, for Absalom to have sex with all ten of David's concubines. The purpose of this, he explains, is to cause such an offence to his father that it would burn his bridges between him and David forever. There could be no chance of a reconciliation after this, and such a decisive break would galvanize Absalom's supporters to finish the job. You see the logic of it? If he does this, David and Absalom are finished. No one's going to try and reconcile them together. This break is going to go on forever. And Absalom doesn't hesitate. Verse 22, so they pitched the tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, I wonder how you feel about that. There's no question, is there, that we are meant to be outraged by this action. It is appalling. Now, this is not the time to talk about the rights and wrongs of concubines. What, the wrongs of concubines? All we need to know is that in that world, this action is calculated to be the most offensive thing a son could do to break his relationship with his father. One historian commentating on this says it would be like a kind of symbolic rape of David's kingship. So we are meant to be horrified by this advice. But there's a wider context we need to keep in mind as well. For a start, although Ahitophel's advice is evil, it is not stupid. It was intelligent, pragmatic, far-sighted. It was, in a straightforward, worldly kind of way, wise. Verse 23 confirms this. Now, in those days, the advice Ahitophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. This is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahitophel's advice. Now, putting verse 23 right there may cause us to scratch our heads. Can you see the narrator is attributing this abominable piece of advice to God? Remember the context. Do you notice where Absalom is having sex with David's concubines? On the roof of the palace, in the sight of all Israel. Not only is this the roof where David's adultery with Bathsheba began back in chapter 11, it is also the direct fulfillment of God's judgment against David for that adultery. So just leave a finger in, uh, in this passage and just flip back to chapter 12 for a moment. Chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. And this is what Nathan the prophet says to David from God. 12.11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, 
and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. In other words, here again, a theme that we are seeing building up as we go through this section of the Bible, here again is the awesome sovereignty of God at work. Something that is meant to make us scratch our head, something that is meant to make our head hurt. But here is the importance of it. Can you see that the very advice, the devilish advice, the evil advice, the human advice, the very advice that is meant to overthrow David's kingdom by an abominable act of sin is the very means that God will use to further his purposes and ultimately to destroy Absalom, as we'll see. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The very moment the enemies of God believe they are removing God's chosen king is God's means of fulfilling his word. And so we're seeing again the extent, the greatness of the sovereignty of God. And we're seeing again, aren't we, how everything <clears throat> is leading us to Christ crucified. Not the obvious bits of the Old Testament only, but a tent full of concubines on the roof of a palace is leading us to Christ crucified. The worst God's enemies thought they could do to his king was the very thing God planned they would do to his king. What a God we have. They thought they were winning, but God is winning. Remember Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. Let's make him sleep with his father's concubines. That'll win. The kings of the earth take their stand. Verse 4 of Psalm 2, the one in heaven laughs. But come back to chapter 17 now and see the second part of Ahitophel's advice. The NIV, I think, uh, gets the verbs uh, slightly wrong here. I think it would better be to translate it, let me, let me choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I will attack him while he is weary and weak. I will strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. The second part of Absalom's plan is as brutal as the first, and it's equally wise. So just think about the brilliance of it. First, Ahitophel is offering himself to go into battle on Absalom's behalf, saving Absalom from personal risk. Second, he would gather a significant army of troops and set out immediately in pursuit of David. He knew that there wasn't a moment to lose. He proposes going tonight, while the king is weary and weak, before David can regroup and gather his strength. Thirdly, the attack will be a surgical strike, killing only David, bringing David's supporters over to Absalom's side with minimal bloodshed. It is actually a brilliant plan from a brilliant man. And verse 4, everybody agrees. 
This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Just note that national unity in verse 4. The expression, all the elders of Israel, only occurs three times in the books of Samuel. When the nation demands a king in 1 Samuel 8, when the nation anoints David as king in 2 Samuel 5, and here, as the nation plots to destroy God's king. Again, echoes of Psalm 2, the rulers gather together. Here is Israel against her God. Here is humanity against God. And it's a brilliant plan. Everyone can see it would succeed. It's bound to succeed. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, in a word, God. Because remember the two pieces of information that we know, that the players in this drama don't know. One, David has prayed to the Lord, turn Ahitophel's wisdom into foolishness, and two, he has sent Hushai to do just that. Which means that what Absalom does next will prove to be the biggest mistake of his life, the foolish counsel of the friend, 7, 5 to 14. Verse 5, but Absalom said, here is his big mistake. Summon also Hushai the archite so we can hear what he has to say. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahitophel has given this advice, should we do what he says? If not, give your opinion. This is the turning point. If he'd followed Ahitophel's wise counsel, he would certainly have been successful. There was no way David could have survived that attack, that plan. But despite everyone agreeing that it was good, for some reason he decides to seek an alternative opinion. We can make a bit of a guess why, I think. After all, he didn't question the first piece of advice, did he? Sex with ten concubines, yes, Absalom can do that. That's right up his street. But Ahitophel's plan is a little bit less appealing for Absalom. Do you notice it, it doesn't sort of center around him? And so in comes Hushai, David's mole in the palace. Fortunately, he hears Ahitophel's proposal, and then he's asked what he thinks, and here is the moment when that prayer to the sovereign God, David's ingenuity, and Hushai's human wisdom all come together. He gets straight to the point. Verse 7, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahitophel has given is not good this time. And maybe you can imagine all the people around sort of taking a breath. This is bold, isn't it? This famously wise counselor, his advice was not good. And then Hushai follows this up with one of the most brilliant pieces of verbal manipulation you can find in the Bible. I wonder if you notice the difference between Ahitophel's little precise plan, as Paul was reading, and then Hushai's kind of lengthy, verbose, poetic, exaggerated suggestion. See, we need to be clear that he is actually telling a load of lies here, Hushai. Exaggeration, deception. Because Ahitophel's plan was good. Hushai had to convince Absalom to reject it and turn it into folly. And he does it by two 
means. He appears, appeals to Absalom's fear and Absalom's vanity. Firstly, notice how he appeals to his fear. He paints this massive, exaggerated picture of David as this guerrilla fighter, fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. But those of us who've been following this story up till now know that this is not the real David of today, skulking low somewhere exhausted. This is the legendary David of the past. The David of 1 Samuel, who did strike wild beasts to protect his father's flock. The David who struck down Goliath with a stone. The David women used to sing songs about. Hushai is saying, no, your plan is much too cautious. Absalom, you need to think bigger, much bigger. David is this great warrior, and you're going to need a great army to attack him. And so verse 12 Then we will attack him wherever he may be found. We'll fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor his men will be left alive. He appeals to his fear. He says, we've got to obliterate this man. But he also appeals to Absalom's vanity. Absalom may have noticed that according to Ahitophel's plan, he was a little bit of a passive onlooker. But notice how Hushai, knowing what Absalom is like, puts him right at the center of it. Verse 11, I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand of the sea, shall be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. There's the plan that is going to appeal to Absalom. And notice that mention of sand, little reference to the promise of God to Abraham, as if subtly claiming that this is Israel's destiny. And so Hushai uses this very clever mixture of deception and manipulation and exaggeration to play on both Absalom's fear and his vanity. And again, just as with concubines, there's a moral, ethical question that we might want to ask at some point about the the rightness and wrongness of lying and falsehood to further the purposes of God, but we haven't got time for that now. The point is that his plan is ridiculous. It's foolish It's over the top. It's the kind of thing worthy of President Putin. It's grandiose. It's foolish. It'll never work. All it will do is give David the time to escape. But now look at verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahitophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahitophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. In the midst of all the words flying around in this contest between these two counselors, the narrator now reveals What is really going on? The second part of verse 14 is the most important thing that anyone has yet said, isn't it? It may be one of the most important lines in the whole of 2 Samuel. It falls structurally in the kind of the the dead center of chapters 15 to 20 that we're studying this term. And it gives us the explanation for the whole story. Now we can see what is going on. God is at work behind the scenes. 
And that is especially important to keep in mind as we turn now to the last section, the hidden wisdom of God in 15 to 29. As we read this final section, we need to remember that we, the readers, have been given a secret, haven't we, in the second half of verse 14. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahitophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. This is a rare and very significant aside that we are given. We now know that God is going to answer David's prayer and use Hushai's advice to bring ruin on Absalom and to save the kingdom. And so verse 14b does something unusual. It's like when you watch a Poirot or a Miss Marple or something like that. You, this is the line you get at the end, but we've skipped to the end. We've forward wound. We've been given the end from the beginning. That line pulls back the curtain on what is normally the secret plan of God. So that we actually get the privilege of watching the action that follows with the ending already revealed, with God's purpose already revealed. The other players in the drama don't know this. Even David doesn't know this. Even Hushai doesn't yet know for sure whether his advice will be carried out. And so with that in mind, verse 15, Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Ahitophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have told them to do so and so. Now send a message immediately and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the desert. Cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. Hushai leaves, he goes straight to get in touch with the priests, who you may remember are part of David's little spy network in the city. And his one objective now is to get a warning to David out in the desert so he can escape across the Jordan before Absalom has organized his attack. It's all about being buying David time. And David's friends now move into action in a well-organized plan. But notice the tension increases as we read. Verse 17. Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. A servant girl was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left quickly and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's main men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimez and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. The plan is to pass on the message to the spies via a servant girl who would look pretty inconspicuous collecting water from the well. But the narrator deliberately raises the tension for us by not telling us whether the message has reached them before their cover is blown and they have to hide down the well. So we are watching the plan go wrong. We notice, as in another moment in Old Testament history, a woman lied to protect some spies from the enemies of God. And we are watching all this. But at the same time, we know what is happening. We know that God is going to bring victory to David and destroy Absalom. We know that because we were told it in verse 14. And so the question we should be asking is why? Why does the narrator do this? Why does he give us all this quite a lengthy description. Why doesn't he just 
cut to the chase and tell us what happened. Because Old Testament narrative is never wasteful of words. Well, I've thought about this this week, and if I can put it like this, if this doesn't sound too odd, I think he's kind of giving us a theological treat. He's giving us a theological treat. See, normally we don't get to see God's purposes ahead like this, do we? Normally we don't get to view life in this way, where we, we see the tension, but we know the outcome. Normally we just see the tension, and we have to pray and hope and work. And this is why so many Christians make the mistake of living as if God is only being God when he is doing the obviously extraordinary when he's doing the big miracles, the God moments, as people sometimes call them. But here we're giving this little privilege, this, this rare treat of, of seeing the tension, of seeing the battle, but knowing how God is working out the details through the ordinary goings-on of life, through human words and actions and decisions. In other words, we're being shown something here that is completely normal, that is completely ordinary, that is always happening. But we're not normally told what God is doing. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Proverbs 16, the dice is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. Well, now look at the outcome, verse 21. After the men had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, set out and cross the river at once. Ahitophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. David is safe. His prayer has been answered. The kingdom is safe. But before we finish, the chapter closes by giving us two hints of how all this is going to end in the future. First, suddenly we are told in a matter-of-fact report of the suicide of Ahitophel, verse 23. When Ahitophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Yeah, there are only four suicides recorded in the Bible. One of these is Ahitophel's, one of these is Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus and also hung himself in a very similar way. What does this tragic episode tell us? Well, it's a reminder of the self-destructive folly of setting oneself up in opposition to God's king. It tells us that you cannot attack the kingdom of God without being crushed in the end. God wins. The nations conspire. The one in heaven laughs. But the second hint at the end of the chapter is the other side of the coin. 
In the last couple of paragraphs, we're reminded that as well as enemies and traitors, David has friends and supporters. And the scene ends with this lovely kind of party in the desert. Have a look at it, verse 24. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Jether, an Israelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash and sister of Zeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk, for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. Now, why does the narrator give us all these detailed names? Well, we don't have time now, but if you were to look up all these names and kind of trace them through, you would discover some interesting stories attaching to almost all of these names. Enemies of David who have become friends. Outcasts, Gentiles, Philistines. Former supporters of Saul who have been won over by David's kindness. A motley collection of rabble, the lowest of society, the outcasts of Israel. Like those people who gathered to David in the cave back in 1 Samuel, you may remember. Here now is the new Israel, the core of the kingdom. As Jesus will say, the meek will inherit the earth. And these people, with their bountiful array of provision, become the means of God's provision for his king, once again in the wilderness, just as he sustained Israel in the desert with manna. Just as at one point the psalmist says, you spread a feast in the desert. And I wonder if, when he composed the most well-known psalm of all. This episode loomed in David's memory, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, let's conclude. <clears throat> what do we learn from this complicated, fascinating, brilliantly told story? What is it we're going to take away? Well, Jesus Christ, God's anointed king, son of David is opposed and victorious at the same time. And this is what gives the Christian life its strange, bittersweet tension. I wonder if you thought it was interesting to see Hushai the Archite described as a friend of David. Did you notice that? Something that's referred to a number of times, isn't it, by way of emphasis. 1537, David's friend. And God's king has friends 
as well as enemies. And if that's the case, how much more significant and precious to hear Jesus in exactly the same place as he followed David's footsteps across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives in John 18, call his disciples, his friends, for whom he will lay down his life. But if you're a friend of Jesus, you're a friend of someone who is opposed and victorious at the same time. And this means that life is going to be lived in a permanent tension. On the one hand, being a friend of Jesus is terrifying because his enemies are your enemies. Can you imagine how terrifying it would have been to have been Hushai in that palace in Jerusalem? No wonder so many people who profess faith in Christ fall away because they did not realize how hard it would be. Or they're cowed and seduced by the apparent power of those who oppose God's king. On the other hand, you know how the story ends. You know how God laughs at those who set themselves up against his anointed. You know he wins. So however bad it gets, nothing will convince you to defect to the other side, will it? No matter how hard it is right now to be Jesus' friend, you know there is no other option but to stay with him because he will prevail. Furthermore, I think this passage causes us to consider as something we don't often do, just how hard and hopeless and actually miserable it is to be an enemy of Jesus, to be on the wrong side of history, like Ahitophel and Judas, to back what you thought was wisdom only to find it is folly, to have chosen the absence of the world as your king and to have to live with that choice forever. To have the God of the universe laugh at your pretensions and your pride. It's a miserable life to be an enemy of Jesus. Even now, let alone the future, the way of the unfaithful is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Or as Jesus says to the persecuting Saul in Acts 26, it is hard for you to kick against the goes. Which is why I said it's a no-brainer, isn't it, to be a Christian? A hard life with joy and glory and hope? Or a hard life without those things? There's my sail pitch. They should pay me to do this, shouldn't they? They do pay me. <laughs> so if the sales pitch is so clear, why doesn't everybody become a Christian? Because it's only on the cross that the two forces come together. Unless we see them there, we will always come down on one side or the other. We will always make one of two mistakes of thinking that having Christ means having an easy, victorious life now, or of thinking that rejecting Christ means we have beaten God. But neither are right, are they? Judas, Ahitophel's New Testament counterpart, proves this. Ahitophel himself proves this. Psalm 2 proves this. Most of all, the cross of Christ proves this. 
And therefore, if you want to see the sovereign grace at work in a secret and hidden way, a way that looks as weak and foolish as you could imagine, but is in fact the only solid place to stand in this world when you're surrounded by enemies, you need to look at the cross of Christ. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us this morning that the very forces that oppose Jesus Christ are the very forces that you use to establish your kingdom, thus demonstrating once and for all that your strength is made perfect in weakness. Thank you that you have hidden behind the cross your goodness, your glory, and our hope so that we will not make the fatal mistake of thinking that those things are found in any other place, in the power and wisdom of the world, or in our own resources. We thank you that the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are teaching us to see this cross of Christ and to put our hope in it, to live boldly in the joy and freedom of knowing Christ crucified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.